0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. I got to greet some of you personally, so I love that. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've come as far as chapter 6. Hard to believe we're moving right along, getting all the meat off the bone, but uh, I'd like to draw your attention, just for those that maybe were not with us, but just building up to this. Because remember, we're we're taking these bite-sized, is it Shark Week? It's Shark Week almost, right? Shark Week's next week, I think. I've been watching uh, 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 something else on the TV about the, I don't know what they call it, Shark, uh, before Shark Week something. Anyway, I, and I'm watching these bite-sized chunks. Some of you are like, oh, no. But that's, you know, that's what, it's the Lord is just, He's as we're going through this, man, I, I see the discipleship happening. I, I had a couple come in uh, to meet with me just uh, last week. They're actually here. I don't, I, you know, I don't I didn't talk to them first, so I don't want to embarrass them, but I uh, I got to talk with them and just some things that were going on in their lives and different things. And and you know, they had just this beautiful blessing recently. And, you know, we've been in First Corinthians chapter five and you know, the whole idea of sexual immorality and sin and everything else. And, you know, they had been living together, but they weren't married. They weren't married, okay? And, and they wanted to do that, but, but there was some, you know, where do I live? And, you know, obviously God's pretty, pretty clear in his word on that. And um, they came in, and we, uh, we got to have Ruben join me. We got to have a, a counseling with him. And, uh, you know, the question comes up right on the spot, well, why aren't we marrying you right now? Like, what are you waiting for? And they look at each other, and they're like, well, I don't know. You love Jesus? Yeah, amen. You, you, you love each other? Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, then let's do this. And, and they got married right on the spot, man. So praise Jesus, right? Because he's dealing with the heart. That's the whole point. The word of God will transform the heart. It's beautiful. And I so love them. They're such a beautiful couple. I so love them. I'm so excited for them. Because what God's going to do in their house and their family. Because he's going to bless it. When God, when we live honorable according to scripture, according to God's word, he can't help but bless it. And that's what awaits them. And I'm so excited about that. So, you know, we left off last Sunday uh, with Paul's exhortation to not keep Company, that idea of close fellowship, when anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, right? Covetous, uh, an idolater, a viler, that, that's someone that's an abuser. A drunkard or extortioner. If you look back in chapter five, you can see the list. Um, the extortioner is one who steals by violence, right? Not even to eat with such a person, Paul had, uh, had told us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and I want to add one more statement to that. I, uh, this, again, is not saying that we can't meet someone for obviously the purpose of, of, of a meal to re-evangelize them, right? Clearly that's not what this is saying, nor is it saying that we can't invest into another person that's walking contrary to the word of God. We simply understand there's, there's just a, when there's a broken relationship with Christ because of, of church discipline or because of sin in that life, we sometimes need to allow that person, as it says in chapter 5, to be buffeted, to have a brokenness so that they do what? They wanna come back home, right? They wanna come back under the covering of the church. And it's beautiful how God has designed that. And I just I, I you know it just I was thinking about because I thought, well what about Thanksgiving? I can imagine some folks in here are thinking, what about Thanksgiving or Christmas? And you have family and friends that come over and join you for dinner, right? You know, Lucy, Aunt Lucy and Uncle Buck, you know. And, uh, you know, they're coming over and what do you do? Now, certainly this isn't telling the believer that they can't have Aunt Lucy and Uncle Buck over for dinner, right? That's, that's not what this is talking about. What this is saying that in regards to a personal relationship, that there's to, to until that point of reconciliation with God, there's to have that um have that, you know, a little bit of protection that a little bit of a guard up to, to allow them to to be buffeted as it says, to be humbled. Now the other thing I wanna add to this and just rounding it out is we're not walking around with a sin hunt, right? You know, we don't have a hat that says sin inspector. You know, we're not we're not all as a body of Christ walking around looking going, you, you, you you know, as though we got you know, there was a um you know, um, I can't remember the show. We used to listen to it on the CD. Uh, it was on where we came from, uh, the Hope FM, you know, a radio station where we came from. Um, every Sunday morning they would have for the, ch- oh, pardon me, Saturday morning they would have for the children uh, a drama or a show that would come on for the kids. You know, radio ministry. It was awesome. Our kids would listen, but we'd also buy these CDs and um, it, you'd listen to it, and it had this. Uh, I remember it had this little detector and the guy would go up with the detector and he'd be like, oh, you're not, you're not who you said you'd be. You're, you're, you don't believe, you don't believe in Jesus. You, you, you're, you're sinning and you're doing all these things and you don't really care. And, and, you know, it was like this detector that kind of, we don't have those detectors, do we? we? We're not to be judges that way, are we? But what are we to be? we're fruit inspectors. If you go to the store and you bring out the produce, you have no problem of, you know, grabbing that melon and, you know, smelling it, you know, kind of touching the sides. I don't know what you do. You touch the sides to it. Is it soft? Is it too, you know, ripe or is it not ripe? And, And what do you do? You buy it when you know it's ready. There, there, there's a, a discernment there that, yeah, this is a good, this isn't rotten. I'm not going to bring it home and it's all rotten and it's going to fall apart. You ever had that happen? You bring a, a produce home and it and, and it's all rotten and it smells and it's it's just a crap. Yeah, okay, right? That's not what this is talking about. We're maybe fruit inspectors, you know. Um, but the thing that we're going to move as we look into chapter six here, our attention is going to be drawn to another sin. And the idea behind this is, is, Helps to understand the church in Corinth. Well, I guess it's not hard for us today in America, but brothers and sisters suing each other. That's the real issue that Paul's gonna deal with in chapter six here. And you could see why this might be a a big deal if, if you think about this for a minute. The church is basically airing its dirty laundry, if I can say it that way, its dirty laundry or its private laundry for unbelievers to judge and to make a spectacle. That, that's really the emphasis of what Paul's going to bring forward here, is in rather than trusting those that are being led by faith in Christ to be the judge, the pastor or elders of your church, to be that counsel to come to arbitrate those issues that you might have, to go to someone who's not saved and then expect them to give you biblical principles would be what? Foolish? Can we, can we use that word Foolish. So clearly, I'm not saying if there's attorneys in here, clearly I'm not saying there's not times where we need to have legal matters, but our first recourse should always to be able to handle things with our brother or sister personally, go to them first, it then should be a matter of church where we come together with the pastors or, or the eldership that way, and we try to work through these things together. Because that's God's design. That's what he's warning them. Because you know what it ultimately ends up doing? Is it creates a bad testimony for the world. Because they look at Christians and say, this is how Christians behave? Why do we need Jesus? They're acting just like the heathens. Well, maybe they wouldn't say the heathens. They're acting just like us. You know, what would they say would be the difference? Is that the same? Okay. So at at the end of the day, you know, Think about it. I want you to think firsthand just about the media today. The first time something unfortunate happens to one of the members of the body of Christ, okay? Just think about this, right? What are they quick to tag it? A fundamental Christian at work again. Here we go, right? Think about this. A couple things I brought up. Uh, Jim Jones, 1978. Some of you may remember that. 913 of his followers commit a mass suicide in Jonestown clearly wrong, clearly a false prophet, clearly not walking according to the word of God. This makes media news, and here they go again saying, look at the fundamental Christians, as though that exploit of what that man did in any way represented Jesus Christ or the Bible. It doesn't, does it? But we get brought right into that whole thing, and now we're the crazy Christians. What about 1993, David Koresh? 74 of his... Davidians, as he called it, there's a branch there. They end up in a fiery death after a standoff by the U.S. government in Waco, Texas. Same situation again. How about Jose Luis de uh, Jesus Miranda? He decided that both he's Christ and Antichrist. I, I don't know how that one works. Uh, I, I don't know how, first of all, a false prophet works either or that. But how to think you're both in one moment. I, I really, that's even. He, he died in August of 2013. But again, a spectacle made. What about the gentleman that's on the radio that's some, not on Hope of M, obviously, or, or a Calvary Chapel Network, but uh, on the radio um, that told everybody, Jesus is coming tomorrow. Send me your millions of dollars you know, send me your hundreds of dollars. And meanwhile, this guy profited off of the naivety, you know, of a Christian. And they sent all their money. And the world looked at that and goes, see, that's what it's all about for these pastors. It's all about, you know, they just, they're they're after the church's money. And these believers don't know. And they're just hook, line, sinker. You know, you don't have a brain if you're a Christian. You know, this is what ends up in the media. This is what people see. And it's events like this um, and other moral failure of priests, or pastors that cause unbelievers to look at Christians a little suspicious, a little bit suspicious, and that's at the best, worst, mentally unstable, mentally unstable. So I want you to understand that context. Think about it in that perspective. Think about it from how the Holy Spirit or that eternal perspective that God looks upon us, that when we err that kind of dirty laundry and i'm not talking about the david Koresh's. obviously that's that is uh, mentally insane i'm talking about when we turn around and air the dirty laundry of things going on marriages and struggling you know struggles within marriages or or you know or or sin within the home and we go out and we we're not we're talking about civil issues here right not criminal criminal we have all scripture behind us that we're to handle criminal things in a court of law with a magistrate because we ourselves, and nowhere in your scripture does it say we're to have a separate um, you know government or some type of judiciary branch that we ourselves, as Christians, are supposed to weigh over criminal. Now, in the Old Testament, there was that for Israel, but we don't see that in our new new covenant or the New Testament on the church that we're to be that. But civil cases where someone's wronged? Those things should try to be reconciled within the church. We should come together in the church and try to make those things right first. And that's what Paul's gonna exhort us here in chapter six and and kind of what he's building up, because after all, chapter five and six, when you take it together, what is he dealing with? He's dealing with a church that has a reputation of being sexually immoral and culturally tolerant. Culturally tolerant. That's what the church was in Corinth was known for. It it had this reputation right? It, it looked just like the world. It was no different. It didn't look like the church had come out of the world. It looked just like the world. Hence the culturally, culturally um, tolerant aspect. So now he's going to deal with these sin issues or these issues with brothers and sisters, um, specifically in regard to the courts. Um, you, you go back and you study early church history, Corinth. Their jury, jury selection was reported to be in the hundreds, you know, our jurors and jury selections, maybe what, 10, sometimes maybe 20 or something like that. or Hundreds. Just to give you a frame of reference, uh, can you imagine trying to get all these people together in unity for a verdict? It became a spectacle and a public spectacle. And this is what Paul is talking about, right? It, it, it's sort of akin to America's fascination, with the TV courtroom drama. Just think about that for a minute, right? Paul strongly denounces this behavior and challenges them that why are they acting as immature? And even if they are immature, why aren't they even going to the most immature Christian? Because even the most immature Christian knows more scripturally than does a secular magistrate that's not, in, that's not living according to the Word of God. Now, there are. Christian attorneys, there are Christian defenses and legal, and certainly that's, a, you know, a different counsel altogether, right? They're trying to do things scripturally, you know, they, they don't encourage you to enter into sin, to do these things. Uh, certainly that's, that's a blessing when you find that. But, but again, Paul says that in Christian matters, we, the church, should arbitrate those things first, the pastors and elders of the church, rather than going to a secular court, and again, certainly there's times where that's needed. I'm not saying that's never needed and that's wrong if you've had to go through that recourse. I'm not saying there might not have been a reason. There may be times where you do everything you can to arbitrate. Um, you've come to the church, the pastors, the elders. We've met together. We've, we've, we've gone through those things. Paul's going to actually even make a statement saying, hey, you know what? Maybe it's better you just let yourself be wronged. Maybe it's better to, to leave because you're not like the world. So let yourself be wronged if you can do that in, in liberty. But if there's a time where it's, it's something you can't survive, you can't eat, you can't live, you know, and something has been wronged you that way, there may be times where you need to, to seek if, if they're not willing to reconcile with you. If they're just not willing to hear you, there may be times where you need to do that. But that's not our first line of defense. That's not our first course of action. The first course of action is to come together as Christians to handle this. And, and I think much of my counseling load, when I really look at the counseling load I do here at the church, much of my counseling load is coming in and arbitrating in some capacity, whether it's with a husband and a wife and just sitting there and let the Holy Spirit take, you know, take the issue and show the hearts where they're at. And, and God works through that. He honors that because it's in his word and he blesses that. Or maybe it's, maybe it's uh, orphans, somebody coming in and, and, and they want to adopt and they don't understand what the process is, and we go through that, right? Or, or, or maybe it's a brother, uh, a family relation, and they're having problems with another brother, okay? And, and they haven't talked for a while, and they haven't been together, haven't had each other over for, you know, there's been this, and we, we sit there, and two brothers get, there, and we talk it out. We, we bring, and we open the scriptures, on and on and on. That's, that's a majority of my counseling though. When, when you really look at it, it's coming together to point people back to what? To Jesus Christ and his word. Because you know what? As I said earlier, he'll bless it. And that's the encouragement for all of you this morning. That if there's something going on in your life personally that you're working through with another person, you know, one, examine your own heart. As God said, both parties should examine their own. Not number two, Come in and talk with the pastors, the elders. Make an appointment to do that so that God can be at the center of that issue rather than ignoring it altogether. Because he also didn't say that in his scripture. He didn't say just ignore it altogether either. He says, no, we have to deal with it, right? So let's, at this point, pray, and then we'll turn our our attention right to verse 1. Father, I pray, Lord, hear God, that you would give us direction in your word, that you would speak very clearly, that we would understand that, Lord, we understand um, reconciliation, God, is always at your heart. Never to cast anyone off or, um, Lord, to write anyone off, but your desire is to always bring those that, Lord, may be off back into fellowship, back into right relationship with you and with our brothers and sisters, Lord. And, God, we know that sometimes we can dig in, Lord, We can dig in. I can dig in, God. I pray, God, that you would open our our hearts and our minds this morning to show us, are there any matters in our lives, Lord, where when we look at this passage, have we begun to harbor enmity, anger, bitterness, strife, Lord, towards another brother or sister? Lord, have we sought to get even? Lord, God, forgive us. I know, Lord, in a church, I'd be surprised if there's not, but God forgive us and restore us. Put us in right relationship with you, Jesus and each other. Let us be occupying together in unity, Lord, until you come. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Chapter six, verse one, dare circle that boy. We don't often see that in scripture. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. This is very, very strong wording that the Holy Spirit uses here. Paul simply can't believe what these Christians in Corinth are doing, right? As we read, apparently one, or it could be several Christians in Corinth, believed that he had been wrong, or she had been wrong, and they sought justice, and rather than seeking, seeking justice one to another, they went to the local courts. That's what we read here, right? That's what Paul's bringing up, and he refers, look at how he refers to the courts here. Look in your Bible in verse one, he He says, to go to the law before the what? Unrighteous. Now, it's not all that different today than in the first century. I mean, the Greek culture found a good legal battle entertaining, right? Some of you uh, understand what I mean by that. Some of you uh, see the public spectacles, uh, things that, uh, you know, have taken over our our airwaves, have taken over our TV waves that way, the media. Uh, I think a Judge Judy Right? Some of you remember that back in the 90s. Do you know that her ratings actually overtook the ratings of Oprah on primetime TV? That watching the Courtroom catastrophes or uh, you know drama breakout actually was more entertaining than Oprah and Oprah and I'm not I'm not saying the the Marcus said it Oprah please by any means but the point is is that people would much rather see that kind of drama and they found it entertaining today you see shows that have great ratings Judge Joe Brown Judge Greg Mathias Judge Lynn uh, Taylor Toller uh, Divorce Court right all time high ratings. Uh, on American TV programming. And, and if you look at the Greek here in this word, again, unrighteous, underline it in your Bible, what is God telling us through this word? It literally means unjust. Unrighteous in the Greek here, it literally means unjust. So don't go to the law before the what? Unjust. So that's what we see here. In a sense, what is he talking about? What's it to mean Unjust. Well, if you, if you look at that theologically, what we're gonna see, what Paul's actually talking about, don't go to the, the courts that way or to before the unrighteous, to those not justified before God. Those not saved, the unjust. Unjust, what is just? Justified. The non-justified. That's what he's saying. The unsaved. Don't go to the unsaved to arbitrate these issues, right? It's not gonna end well. Paul is using this term, in a religious sense, not in a moral sense here. That's, that's what we capture. It isn't that the Corinthian judges were necessarily bad judges, but what Paul's telling us is they weren't Christians, just like today. It's not that every American judge isn't a Christian judge. So I'm sure there's many Christian judges that are righteous and good men, but the reality is you're more or less rolling the dice. You have no idea right? When you go outside of the church, you don't know what judge is going to be put in front of you that way. And could that judge be unrighteous? And if he's unjust and not justified, is he qualified to hear your case? Is he going to, is he going to judge as God with judge? And that's the standard, right? It's not our moral standards. It's God's standard. Amen? So that, that's what we see here. That's why we're to seek this uh, and not just go to the local magistrate. So why, why would the Corinthians Christians try to find justice to those who aren't justified before God? And some would suggest whether it was deliberate or not, because they knew they were making a public spectacle. They were making a mockery. They were drawing attention to themselves. And maybe this was intentional. We don't get that from the passage enough information, and no, Was this deliberate? I mean, some of those TV shows, if you've ever watched them, clearly those things could be handled in a similar court, a low branch court, a low low court where they didn't have to go on TV because somebody didn't get their $200 to replace their car window. That's not something that needed to be reported for all of, you know, the 50 million TV viewers, right, to get justice. What do you think that person was doing? They were engaging in part of that entertainment and the drawing in of attention to themselves and how they've been wrong and watch, they're a 32nd star, right? So this is, this is what Paul is warning, this is what he's trying to protect this church against and I would just draw your attention today if you think it's that different, I hope nobody in here does, but think of the Supreme Court today. Do you really want them weighing in on biblical matters or, or even, really, even cultural matters? I mean, they can't get abortion and marriage right. The two fundamentals, that God has knit the baby in the womb, and it's his creation, God's creation, and it's murder to do anything contrary, right? Uh, Certainly, there's situations where the life of the mother is endangered, and she may be dying, and there's steps that need to be taken to help keep that mother and baby alive, and it may result... In uh, you know, something happening to the baby. But that's not the intention. The intention would be to save both. Amen? It's not to harm the mother or the child or the baby. It's not a matter of choice. No, God's declared the choice. It's a matter of obedience. That's what we see here. And the second one is marriage. It's no different. You know, we, uh, humanity, has decided that they want to redefine marriage. And they would like to do it according to their desires. Their lusts, and so they think that God's word no longer applies. Once again, wrong. <laughs> wrong. There's no way about it. Scripture is authoritative. It's correct. It has all authority because God has breathed it. And so anything contrary to this is walking out of the authority or obedience of God. And no matter how good it feels, that should never be a barometer or should never be a calculation or a measurement to following you know, our desires, we're always to follow God. Our emotions, our feelings, our lusts betray us. You want an example of that really simple? Go on a diet. Go on a diet for two days. The first day is usually the hardest. You're on a diet right around 8 o'clock at night in my house when I'm watching the weight, The chips and the cheesecake call out to me. I think I can hear them audibly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm joking, but I, they're in the other room, and I must walk by them, like, I, I don't know why, five times, and I, and I give them a look, like, are you still there? How I miss you. <laughs> Our evening interludes, you know? I mean, I, I, but the reality is, uh, what do I do? Well, just One. Now, if I'm trying to lose weight, is that contrary to my health at that moment? Or, or if I have a heart condition, I'm supposed to stay away from salt. Or, so, and I go and I eat a bag of chips for even five chips. They even made a commercial about it. At least they're honest. You can't eat just one, right? They they wrote they made a commercial about it. And I'm like, Amen! Somebody finally telling the truth. I'm giving them bag of chips, right? But the reality is, we do that. I mean, we joke, but but we need to know that we 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 will always be driven by our lusts. And our lust will lead us to inaccurate thinking, and it will betray us, even when we think we might be right, and conditioned for it. It's difficult. It's just very difficult here. Now, there, there is one time where we're allowed to do this, and I don't say, I shouldn't have put myself in that category. Ladies, when they're pregnant, right, pickles and ice cream, sometimes pickles with ice cream, and, and all these things. Okay, fine, right? This is the one time, because, you know, there's changes going on, a new birth. Okay, we, we allow that. But in any other sense, should we, should we be playing or toying with the lusts of our flesh? Paul's going to tell us when that happens: flee, get out. Don't even monkey with it. Don't try to uh, show and demonstrate your power over it. He says, get away from it. You know, get behind me, Lays. You know, get behind me, Chips. You know, literally, get rid of them, man. Just destroy them. Throw them out. But but this is a real application here. Look, look, look at verse two here. It says. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Well, that's convicting, isn't it? Do you not know, and he's gonna say this again. You see how he said it in um in verse 2, there, he's going to say it six times Do you not know? Uh, verse 2, verse 3, verse 9, uh, verse 15, verse 16, verse 19. Do you not know? Do you not know? He said the same thing in other chapters within 1 Corinthians, but he, in this passage, over and over again, he's exhorting them, Don't you know? It almost reminds me of Jesus' words to Nicodemus, Nick at night. When he sat with Nick at night and he says, You know, Jesus, what I need to be born again. He says, He's like, don't you know, don't you understand you must be born again? Well, can I go back into my mother's womb? He says, but how can you explain these things to the people, heavenly things, if you don't understand this very foundational thing to be born again? It kind of reminds me of that. Is how Paul's going, don't you know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are the least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is is it so that is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes against or brother goes to the law against brother and that before unbelievers, the unjust again. That's what he says here. I mean, this is, this is incredibly convicting, at least as I was reading this. Paul explains that Christians are fully capable of judging their own matters. That's what he tells us here, and it's wrong to go to the heathen law courts and dispute among Christians. And Paul begins with a series of rhetorical questions, right? Do you not know? What's it mean that the saints will judge the world? He even says we shall judge angels, right? Christians should be fully able to judge their own matters, right? Because of our standing in Christ Jesus. That, that's what we see in here. And as we reign, we've read that before, right? We will co-heir, be co-heirs, reign with Jesus. We're going to judge the world. Now, my understanding of Scripture, if you turn to Revelation chapter 19, and you look at verse 14... You can also look at Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 and 5. My understanding is when we come back with Jesus during the millennial reign, that's a 1,000 year reign with Christ on earth after the rapture, we've been raptured out, we've gone to the wedding feast of the Lamb, we've then come back with Jesus, right? After that seven year great tribulation, that's how long that wedding feast of the Lamb will occur. That we will reign and minister as co-heirs and judge the world with Christ during that time. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 19, 14 and Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. That's what it tells us. You can read it yourself again. Well, verse 3 here in our passage today says that we're even going to judge angels. You know, I I wish Paul could have elaborated a little bit more on this. Any of you that have systematically studied angelology, you probably would agree with me. We know only so much. We know and believe that obviously there's not an angel factory in heaven where we're pumping out angels, right? Or God's pumping out angels. We know that angels were created on those original six days of creation and there was enough angels that would be created for all of humanity and that there are principalities and powers over angels, right? Just like the fallen angels have established principalities and powers. So if you took the entire population of the world, right, all time. We're not talking about the 7.4 or 5 or 6 billion today, but play this throughout history, all eternity to when there will finally be a new heavens and a new earth, right? If you took that entire population, I don't know what that number would be, Uh, Don Richardson, who wrote *Peace Child*, also wrote a book on angelology, or angels, and he tried to estimate what this large number would be. But but let's not get carried away in the number. Whatever that trillion, quadrillion, whatever number is bigger than that illion number is. The reality is that if there are angels like Angel, the Archangel Michael, he's an angel over what Israel, right? Our Bible tells us he is one of the principalities that is over Israel. So we know that there's angels over America. There, there are angels over maybe Harrisburg, Camp Hill. There's some type of order in operation there. And so God has established that. So maybe there's millions, trillions, whatever it is. But whatever that number is, we know that they were, they were created at one time and a third of all of them have fallen. Okay, so that's an astronomical large number. Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing and he's not omnipresent. Most of us will never ever personally encounter Satan himself. But we will encounter the demonic fallen angels and the oppression and affliction of that, okay? That's spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, when we get there. Ladies, Tuesday nights, you're going to be there, you know, if not this Tuesday, next Tuesday, that when you guys get together again, you'll be there. So, as you study this and you look at it, uh, what, what we, you know, obviously wish Paul would have given us a little bit more on this idea of judging angel, but the, the idea of Christians judging, I think, an angel is very interesting, before the fall of humans, we were created in what? The image of God. Genesis 126 and 127. And certainly we would agree, God not being a created being, okay, always existed, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that angels being a created being, that God would be superior to that. We, we would agree that that would be a natural order. God created uh, the humans. We, he's superior to us. God created angels. He's superior to them. But Being that we were made in the image of God, one could suggest that in in creation or the original design, we were ranked higher than the angels. We would have been ranked higher because we were made in the image of God. And we don't read anywhere in scripture where angels were made in the image of God. As a matter of fact, we read the contrary, right? However, after the fall, we were begotten after the image of who? Seth, right? Why? Because Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 tells us, Adam and the Adamic nature. That Adam had a son and his name was Seth and he was created after his likeness. That's Genesis chapter 5 verse 3. And that we have now become what? Lower than the angels. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 7 through 9 explain that when Jesus became a man, in other words, fully divine, fully human, okay? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, when, when Jesus became a man, he, basically, he became lower than the angels when he took on flesh. That's what we read there. He was still God. He was God in the human, right, form, but he was the God-man. Therefore, understanding and taking Hebrews 2, 7 through 9, literal, it implies that humans are now Lower than the angels, from a ranking perspective. And again, there will come a time where I do believe, because now when we're born again, we've been given a new nature, and we will one day receive a glorified body. And I believe when we do receive that glorified body in this carbon-based life suit that we wear, no longer needed, you know, will we eat in heaven Yes, there's an opportunity for that. Will we be required to eat um, in heaven? I, I don't believe I see that in Scripture. I do see that the the leaves will be medicinal. There'll be some type of health that way. In Revelation, it tells us. But I don't see where we're on a um, you know a carbon based life system that way we are today. Uh, first of all, we won't have the the you know the sun, the sun. the the, the heat and everything else that we need to function. If we we don't have that, we get hypothermia and die, right? In heaven, we know that the S-O-N, the one we really care about, Jesus, he will be the light. He will, it says it will emanate from the center of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens that way. It will emanate from the center, Jesus, and the light will reflect or refract off of all of the walls, bringing a light that we are all able to see in the presence. There will be no more day or night that way. That's what we read when we study Revelation. So, so Jesus is our source of light. Not all that different than what we read in Scripture for us today, that we are to be salt and light to the world. And he tells us that eternity, he will continue to be our light. He will continue to be our light. Well, if you, if you study this out, it looks like that when we get our glorified bodies, then, uh, again, knowing that's a future event, during the millennial kingdom... Which is the time when Christ will reign, right? And um, and reign as King. Zechariah chapter fourteen, verses nine through twenty-one. Um, it's in this sense that I believe that Paul's writing that we will, as Christians, judge angels. I believe will be that we will be greater in rank, but not necessarily superiority. I don't think we'll we'll be superior to the angel. I think we'll be ranked higher than the angel. You be Bereans and and study this, but but. Christians are being prepared right now for that destiny, right? That's, that's what I read in my Bible. Um, so why were the Corinthian Christians at this time, why were they, I don't know, why were they dealing with things that were matters of the church? Why were they going to these unsaved, unjust men? And that's what Paul's bringing out. He's, don't you know your destiny? That you will judge over these matters? And you're going to Men? men that are not saved, women that are not saved to judge over these matters before you? He, he basically breaks out into verse 5 and says, therefore, is there not a wise man among you, right? The, the Corinthian Christians were, were, if you remember back in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, he came back and he was, he was demonstrating, he says, I know you think your intellect and your wisdom. Remember, we talked about that in the first chapter, how they were so uh, puffed up because of their intellect and wisdom. And he explains to them later on that they were like babes and, and, and that they, they were still on milk and not meat. He actually lays it down hot for them. But, but as we see here, he's drawing the attention. He says, is there not really one wise among you? You know, what about all this worldly wisdom that you have? It's not going to help you. No, there's not a wise man among you. And verse 6 says, and because of that, what do you do? Brother goes against brother, right? Brother goes to the law against brother. This is the sin that was going on. Paul, Paul again, wasn't against the legal action. Why can I say that? Because in Acts chapter 22, verse 25, what did Paul himself do? Or even chapter five, uh, 25 of Acts, uh, verses 10 and 11, what did Paul do? Paul himself appealed to who? Caesar and to the Roman courts, right? He says, I appealed to Caesar that he would go and stand before Caesar and be tried by Caesar. So it's not that Paul was necessarily a, against Caesar but for brother to brother in Christ, that's the condemnation. That's where, or sister to sister, that, that's what we see here. That's what he's talking about. You know, we, we as Christians should try to settle our dispute among ourselves according to God's principles. That's what we should do here. And this, this can either be done through the church or some type of Christian arbitration. You know, Paul doesn't say that Christians should have their own court system to handle criminal law. In Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, again, that's Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, Paul says that it's appropriate for the state to handle criminal cases. We actually read that right in Scripture. Christians should, however, be able to handle civil cases among themselves. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure. Wow. And that's a really accurate translation here. For you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? So now he's going to exhort them on a different principle. He built that principle in Romans out well, Romans 14, choosing love over liberty. So now he's going to further add this. Remember, he's talking about brethren and sisters. You know, He's talking about brothers and sisters here in the church. These Corinthians were just like many of the Americans, you might say. They were engrossed in their rights, um, in doing so we learn that by doing that, if you were following just your inalienable rights, your rights, it leads to an what's the word he uses there? An utter failure. That's what he says. Those are his words. Those are the Holy Spirit's words. When we do things according to our will and way, it results in an utter failure. And just by going to a court that way, we against a brother, he's saying you've already lost. You, you've already lost. Often he's saying it's better to accept wrong. It's better to let yourselves be cheated than to defend your rights at the expense of God's glory and, and the higher good of the kingdom. But, but the man who's wronged should not think Paul was asking him to necessarily take a loss. No, that's not what he's saying here. What, what is he saying? He says one that accepts the wrong for, for the sake of God's glory will never come up short handed or get the short end of the stick. That's that's what we see here. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying don't you recognize that God is the ultimate judge? And that what are you so worried about what is here? He says don't you realize that all of it's going to burn the thing because remember we're talking about civil cases. All of it's going to burn. So I understand you might be entitled to restitution. But do you need the restitution? Is it something that if you need restitution, certainly you arbitrate and you go that way. But are you doing it more so that you can prove your point or that you can prove the, the, you know, what is the motive of this? Sometimes it's better to let yourself be cheated. Now, again, notice he's not saying ignore it. He didn't say if something like this happens, you're to pretend like it never happened or never say anything to an elder or pastor among you. He didn't say you're to cover it up he didn't say you're to pretend like it didn't happen. He doesn't exhort us on that because that's the fear. There's directions, right? One extreme to the other extreme. The one extreme is I'm out to get what's coming to me and I deserve it, and it's the rights I have. Right. Are you willing to take those up for the liberty, you know, your liberty for love in Christ? But then there's the other extreme of where you know what? I understand that, and I certainly never want to. You know, it's all God. He He gives me these things. It's all His anyway. I certainly am not worried about that. I'm not looking for a recompense. I'm not looking for anything. Um, you know, retribution. I'm not nothing like that. You know what? I don't even want to make a deal. I don't even want to say anything about it. I don't want this wrong to be even discussed. Well, that's wrong as well, because there might be a correction that's needed. For that brother or sister, and not having that time to come, or you might think you are right, right? You might think I've got this, I've I've judged this, I've you've been weighed, you've been found wanting, you know. I've judged this already, uh, and you've judged it wrong. (laughs) You know, is there possibility there? I mean, can we be open? Is that possibility exists that we can examine the facts with a presupposition and think that we are always right? Yes. So he's saying there. It's good to come to the pastor's elders to make sure that. That understanding who's wrong or in this case may have failed um, morally or something going on here can make right, but of choice, of wanting to, of free will, wanting to do that. And if somebody's wrongfully judging somebody, they could be uh, encouraged to maybe see things from a different perspective, maybe a perspective of Christ, something that's more true and, and, and whole that way. And so, you know he's not. He's not saying you know yes it's all going to burn so don't care. That's not what he's saying. He's saying no care more about the brother or sister the heart issue. That's that's what we see here. And I, I, ideally the church is the one that's supposed to settle these disputes. But if, if the church failed to do so, what did Paul ask them to do then? Trust God. That's what Paul says. If the church fails to arbitrate correctly or the elders or the pastor get it wrong, even then you're not without trust God that's, that's what he shows us here and I, that's just comforting to me because any of us that are ever called into a situation of arbitration maybe a brother or sister comes to you to your home and they sit down with you and they're saying bro I, I, you know, this is what's going on and, and what do you think we should do you know, m- probably many of you have had that happen family members come over to your house and loved ones and different people what do you think we should do and they earnestly want to know they're seeking you know, help there what do you do in that particular case well, I, hopefully the first thing you do is pray, right? And as you pray, usually a heaviness will come over you. Whoa, Lord, I don't want to misspeak. I don't want in any way want to misrepresent your word or your character or, or your love. And you realize the soberness of the moment that somebody's coming to you basically to be ministered to by the word of God and they're using you as a vessel of God. Just think about that for a minute, the heaviness of that and this, this, you know, the seriousness of that. And so he, he tells them, now, look, if this is the case, don't take it serious, but don't get to the point of where you, you're paralyzed by it because God is the ultimate judge. And even if you blow it, God will still judge righteously because he's not a respecter of persons. And that's what we see here. That gives me great comfort because if I ever counsel you or I you know, well, I think the you know Lord's showing us this, and you know, I'm taking two couples together and I blow it, you know what? God never does. Amen? God never blows it. He's gonna, he's gonna leave the 99 to go after one. He's gonna never leave you nor forsake you. Over and over again, he tells us in scripture. Well, let's close with verses eight through eleven here this morning. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So that's the accusation. Do you not know, he tells him one more time, this is the third time, that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. In the Aradist tense. I love the Aradist tense. Don't you love the aorist tense in the Greek? It's always in the what? The aorist in the translation in English from the Greek is what in the aorist, Past tense. It's done. You've been given victory. You have this. Thank you, Jesus. It doesn't say you may or someday you will. He says, as such were some of you. In other words, you no longer are in that sin. You no longer are comfortable there. But you've come out of that. And you were what? Washed I love this. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We get an example of the Trinity there. So let's look at this here and exegete these scriptures and then we'll close here today. We learn there's no place for dishonest dealing among Christians. That's the first thing we see here. Um, sin is a, an offense, and it's serious. We shouldn't be comfortable with it. Many have objected to the things or rejected the things of God and the fellowship of the saints because of dishonesty and because of cheating, cheating Christians. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is stern, and this passage has at times, I think, been difficult for many Christians to receive. Paul wasn't necessarily denying a man's salvation here. Please, let's be careful in the context. Paul says he is among the brethren. If he's among the brethren, they're what? Saved. He's talking to saved men and women. However, Paul is reminding us that the audio and video must match our actions. Remember that whole idea of fruit inspection? If a Christian can cheat and defraud his brother without a conscience, without any bother in that whole thing, it can be fairly asked, are you a believer? If there's, if there's no remorse, if there's no uh, ill feelings to hurting or doing wrong to a brother or sister, the question can be asked, are you really saved? Do you really know Jesus Christ? Because he who lives in you and the spirit of God living in you certainly would never condone that nor, nor encourage that. Does that mean that we don't sin. That's not what we're saying here. That's not what we're saying. Remember what he's listing here when he goes through this, specifically the man who wronged his brother, he, what he's doing is he's showing that he is put into a similar category, right? This category here. And if you look at what, who's in this category, this category is filled with unbelievers. He's saying you're acting like an unbeliever. You're acting like someone that's not saved while you are saved and you have Christ in you. You're acting like someone who doesn't. So the question should be brought up, are you saved? And if the answer is yes, you're saved, then guess what? Don't act like that anymore, right? I mean, I think that's just natural and that's what he's saying here. What's he say? What's the list? Fornicators, those living together outside of marriage. That's sin. Those having sexual relations in that, that's sin. Idolaters, those worshiping anything other than God. Adulterers, those engaging in sexual relations, whether it's physical or even, to some aspect, mental, as Jesus had talked to us and explained what it was. Even the mere mental thought of it, it's sin, right? Uh, He's saying even those adulterers that are engaging in that, it's sin, Why did he say? He says, you can pluck the right eye out or the left eye out or whatever. He says, what? You're still going to sin because it's not an eye issue. What's it an issue of? He points it back to the heart. Remember Matthew 5 through 7? It's a motive of the heart. It's a heart issue. Homosexuals, this word actually needs to be broken out. It really means effeminate. Um, Melikos, in the Greek is the word here, melikos. This is, if I can say it this way, think of it as a, in a homosexual relationship, the female partner that, that takes on that role as the female in a homosexual relationship of two men. That effeminate is the term. You know, the idea behind it in English, we say effeminate, you're acting very effeminate. That person, he's listing out specifically. He then also lists out the sodomite. Well, what's the difference there, right? Well, the sodomite happens to be the masculine partner in that homosexual relationship. What is he making sure? He's v- one of the most detailed clear descriptions in this passage. One, homosexuality is a sin and wrong. There's no way a church can turn around and reinterpret this. The Greek is very clear. Arsinochitis is the word in the Greek. You you can't miss it. Both of these are um, effeminate and or sodomites. So it's saying either the female or the male partner in a homosexual relationship, either one is sin. So if somebody tries to come back and say that, um, he goes on and says, thieves, covetous, revilers, those are abusers, extortioners, those that violently steal. None of those who are characterized, their lives that are characterized by this will inherit the kingdom of God. Now what's the difference here? Paul wants the man that was taking his brother to court or sinning that way against the brother to know just how destructive it is and was. Now Before some of you here begin this morning to question, are you truly saved or are you gonna go to heaven? I, I want to make sure you understand the kingdom of God, what it says here. This is specifically talking about someone's lives who is dominated by these sins. This isn't saying that someone who lusts and has a weak moment after another woman and therefore, if you're married, commits adultery because he lusts after another woman in his mind, as Jesus said, would be sin. It would be sin of adultery. He's saying, I'm not saying that that person will not inherit the kingdom of heaven because none of us would. Amen? No one here's arrived. What he's saying is those that their lives are characterized by that who are continuously and habitually doing this very act of sin and have become complacent and okay with it. They've compromised. And this is what's so disturbing about the body of Christ. Last week I used a harsh term. I said the church has been neutered. Some of you were like, whoa, that's a heavy term. I meant the term I used. And the reason I used that term, as heavy as it was, was not to condemn or hurt somebody that way, that's certainly not my place. I'm not to browbeat. What I was doing was drawing the attention to the compromise within the church today. That there are churches that will say they will allow homosexual pastors, they will allow lesbian marriages and homosexual marriages, and they have compromised on the word, the word of God. And clearly the Greek here, as well as the English, I think we all understand what it's saying. It is sin. It is sin. It is, sin. It is wrong. And to turn around and tell a group of believers that it's okay to practice this lifestyle and that we shouldn't try to come out of this lifestyle. No different than an alcoholic, a drunkard. No different than, you know, a reviler, somebody that's abusing men or women. When you're saved, you need to come out of that. But you can only come out of that through Jesus. Amen? Pornography, the addiction of pornography. It's only by Jesus that you come out of these things. Well, that's what he's saying here. If your life is dominated by these sins, it all goes back to the original question. Have you received Jesus Christ in your life? Have you asked him to be your Lord and Savior? And have you given your life over to him and asked him to take control? I can't tell you the countless people I've talked to that have struggled, you know my testimony, alcohol, other things like that, drugs, what have you, pornography for some others here, that have struggled with that. The minute they got saved, they were like, you know what? I'm still feeling that urge and lust. Yeah, I say it because you're saved in a minute or a moment. But sanctification is a lifetime. And I begin to tell them about that and because they, so they, they're condemning themselves and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But then I begin to tell them what? I begin to say, hey, look, watch how he who is in you, by the way, greater than the world, watch how he overcomes that sin in your life. Are you trusting him? Have you given it to him? Do you believe Are you walking in the unity of the spirit, that the spirit testifies and you believe it? And he says, if you do that very thing, watch how he overcomes that. And I got to tell you, guys that have overcome pornography, women that have overcome pornography, women that have overcome, and guys, adultery and addiction, alcohol addiction, because they gave it over to Christ and they themselves didn't try to do it in their strength. And and I will point this out and I'm not trying to not be sensitive or unloving. But nowhere does the Bible call these things diseases. Nowhere do you read in scripture that any of these things are classified as a disease. The real issue is we have chosen the sin over Jesus. Every single time when we fall into that situation. And I don't say this lightly as someone doesn't understand because I am guilty as charged. There are times that in my life, my emotions, my lust, my eyes, my heart, my anger betrays me. It betrays me. And what do I do? Do Am I comfortable in the habitual sin? No, I can't stand it. I want to flee the sin. You know, the billboard you see on the thing, the first look is harmless. I never want to take that second look. I never want to do it. Does it consume you? If you're sitting here this morning and it consumes you, praise God, that's not what this is talking about. This is for the believer that's sitting here and goes, I I really don't see what the big deal about homosexuality is or I don't get what the big deal is about alcoholism. Why why can't I be drunk all the time? I feel better. I'm a better person. Everybody likes me around because I'm funny and they think I'm I'm the, the lie for the party. What's the big deal? It's sin. It destroys and breaks relationships. Jesus can free you of this. He will free you of this. And for many of us, as Paul said, has freed us. Because he says in verse 11, right? And were such, or such were some of you. I get to this point, and I, I want to clap. I want to say, praise God, because we're such some of these. Guess what? Amen. That was me. But that's not me anymore. And then look what he says, how he, he characterizes this, right? Um, you know, Christians that can be unloving or uncaring. He says, this is wrong too. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He says, what? That the message of salvation in Jesus Christ is he will save his people from their sins. That's God's promise. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. But in verse 11, back in our text, he says, You're washed, sanctified, and justified. The work of Jesus is described in three terms you're washed. You were washed by the work of Jesus on the cross, Revelation chapter one, verse five, and by the word of God, Ephesians chapter five, verse 26. You were sanctified. That means you were set apart unto God, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, and you were justified. We were declared just before the court of God, not merely, not guilty, right? But declared just before him. We're justified by God's grace, the work of Jesus on the cross, which we read about in Romans chapter three, verse 24. And then this last little point, do you see it there in verse 11? What should have jumped out at you? What jumped out at me? What jumped out at many of us as believers? I love this, the Trinity. Do you see it? Do you see the Trinity in verse 11? All three persons of the Godhead, he tells us that he can take people described in 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine and 10, that list the fornicators, the idolaters. He tells us, I can take them in that list and I can make them into my children, described in 1 Corinthians six eleven. Look at it. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified and justified. He can take that idolater, he can take that whoremonger, he can take that homosexual, he can take all of them, which we are to love those individuals that are in sin. We are to love them. We are to draw them to Christ but we're not to compromise with the sin. But it's God that does the work. He takes those folks condemned by their sin. They become children when they receive him. And then he gives them the ability and victory over their sin and sets them free. And that's who you all are this morning in Jesus. Amen?